Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We're coming to you today from New York City, where I have the privilege of having a conversation with Professor Hans Boersma. Hans is the J.I. Packer Professor of Theology at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Hans. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Now, um, I want to begin by noticing the fact you speak with an accent. Well, Tell us why that is. I suppose it's because I'm Dutch. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. So you're from Holland. I've lived in Canada for over 30 years, but I am Dutch. So yes, uh, the accent is definitely still there. And did you grow up in a Dutch Reformed home? I did. Mm-hmm. I did. My dad was a pastor, still is a pastor. He's retired now. But yeah. yes, I grew up in a Christian home, Reformed home. So a lot of people, when they think of the Dutch Reformed tradition, we, we think of Abraham Kuyper. Mm-hmm. Is that a figure that you would have known about growing up? And yes, I would have. Although the the subgroup of of Reformed uh, Christianity that I grew up in was uh, had an ambivalent attitude toward Kuiper. Uh, Kuiper uh, had uh, was the leader of a uh, larger group of Reformed Christians uh, from whom we had split in 1944. Ah. Um, so there was a love-hate relationship with Abraham Kuyper. And he was the founder, was it the Free University That's of correct. Amsterdam? But you went to Utrecht, right? I went to Utrecht much later. Yeah. Uh, yes, um, after I had uh, studied theology uh, in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, we moved back to Holland and studied uh, yeah, in Utrecht. Utrecht. Uh, one, one of the few people I've known uh, who had a, a PhD from Utrecht was Heiko Obermann, right. who was my teacher for a while and my friend. And was very proud of the fact that uh, he had an Utrecht uh-huh. PhD, not an Oxford one. He had studied at Oxford, but his doctorate was from Utrecht, okay. and he thought that was much more uh, had much more valence to it. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your work, and in, in particular, you've been, I would say, an, uh, among evangelicals, a pioneer in mining the theology that's sometimes called Nouvelle Theologie. New Theology in French. Tell us a little bit about what that is and why you got interested in it. Nouvelle Theologie uh, was a mid-20th century movement of theology, of Catholic theology. A number of different, uh, both Jesuit and and Dominican theologians were involved in it. What I find particularly interesting about them is that they turned to the Church Fathers in order to renew theology for their own day. Um, I think that has a number of, of interesting um, spin-offs for theology still today, both Catholic and Evangelical, I think. Um, and the way in which I um, got interested in Nouvelle Théologie, in, in theologians such as Henri de Lutbach, Jean-Denis Lou, Yves Congar, and others, is um, I was teaching at the time at Trinity Western University in Langley, B.C., and uh, we had a reading group there of some evangelical, Catholic, and um, Orthodox theologians. And one of the texts that we read there was Yves Congar's uh, massive two-volume book, Tradition and Traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was struck uh, by Congar, both because um, he showed how scripture and tradition are not two separate sources of revelation, but are closely interconnected, which didn't quite fit with my understanding of Catholic understandings yeah. of, um, of tradition. 
And, and I thought it was very insightful, very helpful for my own understanding of how scripture and tradition interrelate. And the other related point to that is that I thought of Congar when I read that book, uh, is that, that he was someone who understood Protestants well. Mm -hmm. um, he was not uncritical to his own tradition, with respect mm -hmm. to his own, own, own Catholic tradition. He, uh, he's, he was someone who understood um, the Protestant Reformation quite well, I thought, mm -hmm. and understood their motivations. And so those two points combined interested me in, in Congar. Uh, the other person that I particularly love within the Valtiology, perhaps even more so, is Henri de Lubac. Mm -hmm. and, and that comes especially uh, from the fact that within the department, our Religious Studies Department at Trinity Western University, we had a lot of discussion on how Bible and theology relate to each other. And so the department at one point asked me, well, why don't you write up some points and, and, and we can discuss them together, mm -hmm. which I did. And for that occasion, I read for the first time Henri de Lubac, whom I didn't know at all. Yeah. I read an essay by him on allegory and, and um, topology. I did not grow up in a tradition that appreciated um, either of those two, really, and especially... Allegory, a very bad word. Allegory, yeah. that was indeed <laughs> a very bad word. But early on, uh, I, I decided that um, with regard to reading the Church Fathers, in reading them, I, I would at least hold before me the fact that these were, were intelligent and godly people, that these people were probably as intelligent and godly as I am. <laughs> and, and, and I couldn't simply write them off, so I wanted mm. to understand them from the inside out before perhaps critiquing them. Let um, me ask you about the, these, the, these theologians, uh, the three you mentioned, uh, Henri de Lubac, uh, Jean Danielou, and Yves Congar. All three uh, had a palpable influence on the developments at Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think de Lubac may have been there, was he not? Yes. Uh, so say a little bit about that renewal of Catholic theology that issued in some ways in the changes, the revolution, the evolution, however you'd want to describe Vatican II. The Nouvelle theologians that we're talking about um, wanted to renew Catholic theology. They were concerned that, um, especially since the late 19th century, Catholic theology had separated um, the world of nature, the realm of nature as it is often called, and the realm of the supernatural, had separated those too much. So when, when Protestants think of Catholic theology, they often have a picture of a world of nature all by itself with its own proper goals and ends, and then on top of that, the church posits this other distinct building mm -hmm. of the supernatural with its own distinct ends and purposes. That may be a bit of a caricature with regard to some Catholic theology, but people such as Tullibard, Congard, Daniel Lou, they thought it did hold some truth with regard to some Neo-Thomist theology yeah. that became quite strong ever since the late 19th century. And they decided to turn particularly to an understanding of, of, of the Church Fathers and also later on of Thomas Aquinas himself, whom they thought had been, who they thought had been misread uh, by the later Neo-Thomists. And so they said, well, when you actually turn to the 13th century, and particularly when you turn to the Church Fathers, uh, you'll find an interrelatedness there of nature and the supernatural that we need to recover. And it's that that gave an impetus to the Second Vatican Council 
and also to the period after that in, in the Roman Catholic Church. So the Nouvelle theologians were hugely influential there, yes. I want to get in a few minutes to the whole question of exegesis and how Scripture is read in, in, in this tradition and by you as someone who's been informed by it as an evangelical and a Protestant. But before we do that, traditional Catholic theology has often been understood to be a kind of re-articulation of Aristotle. And one of the things Luther protested so much against were the Aristotelians, the scholastic theologians, of which he was one in some ways because he was brought up in that tradition as an alchemist, a follower of the Via Moderna. But you have proposed a, a kind of renewal of theology through a more Platonist Christian synthesis. We usually associate... Uh, Plato with heaven and Aristotle with the other place. Um, that's, of course, an exaggeration. But talk a little bit about a shift, if you will, in your own thinking. Why Plato? Many people regard Plato as not the way forward, but as someone who kind of removes you from reality into this transcendental realm. But you, what do you mean by a Platonist Christian synthesis? What I mean by that is that for the Christian Platonist tradition, um, those two quote-unquote realms that I just talked about of nature and the supernatural um, are not separate, but are closely linked together. Uh, Plato used the term methexis or methusia for that, mm -hmm. which simply means participation. So the earthly realm, you could say, for Plato wasn't unreal, didn't not exist, but it was less real than the realm of the forms, as he called them. So this worldly reality, say earthly reality, participates in something greater. Mm. Now, it's true that for a Christian Platonists, that means earthly reality is not ultimate. It's not the thing we live for. We live ultimately for something greater, namely to see God himself. We long for the face of God. We long to see God. That always renders to a Christian, I think, certainly to a Christian Platonist, that renders the here and now are less important than that. Doesn't make it unimportant. In some sense, you could even say, it's precisely that supernatural orientation, that orientation onto the face of God, that gives importance to everything I do here and now. And that's why I often call this perspective, this Christian Platonist perspective, simply a sacramental perspective or a sacramental ontology, because it makes everything that we see around us, in some derived sense, you could say, quote unquote, a sacrament. Yeah. Because it makes it important. It makes it important because it shows us something of the grandeur of God. It's a window, maybe a prism through which we see that. And in some ways, what, what you're describing is just another way of talking about New Testament Christianity, isn't it? Because here we have no continuing city. We seek one to come. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we would be of all people most miserable, St. Paul says. And yet the, the problem or the danger may be uh, a, a focus so much on the supernatural to come, the eschatological, that we lose, we become docetic. That's certainly a possibility. Um, there's a danger in Christian Platonism, namely that we lose the significance of God placing us in time and in space, here and now. Mm -hmm. um, that definitely is a danger, but I think it's a danger perhaps, especially today, worth taking. Mm. Because it seems to me that we live in a materialist society, a society that is thoroughly oriented on the here and now, and the kind of focus on the disciplines, the kind of focus 
on, on, on renunciation of the self and of, 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 of certain, certain goods, goods in themselves, but the things that we want to maybe temporarily set aside mm -hmm. for the sake of something greater. That kind of focus that so many in the Christian tradition, including in the Reformation tradition, the Puritans, for example, had, almost seems to be gone. And I want to say, no, we need to, we need to resource that, we need to retrieve that, because the here and now is not ultimate. Yes, it's important, but it's not the ultimate. Yeah. Now, you've used the word sacramental a couple of times, and it's one that uh, it resonates with your writings in different ways. You've said, if we take seriously the resourcement of the sacramental tapestry, I believe that we will discover great ecumenical opportunities. Sacramental has been a difficult word for a lot of Protestants, uh, particularly maybe the more Puritan Protestants, uh, the more Zwinglian wing of Puritanism. Uh, you want to give it a better, fuller, richer, more textured meaning. Uh, talk a little bit about sacramental, and he you have a book entitled Heavenly Participation mm -hmm. that deals in some ways with this resourcement of the sacramental. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, when, when we think of the word sacrament, um, as, as Protestants certainly, but also many Catholics, uh, we typically tend, of the kind, tend to think of the kind of things that we encounter in church, baptism and Eucharist or Lord's Supper, which is perfectly legitimate. Mm. Um, but you could also think of sacramental in a broader sense. You could also think of it as the notion that there are some traces of God, some vestiges of God, uh, wherever we look around us. And those traces or those vestiges, as many in the Christian tradition have called them, also within the Reformation tradition have called them, they bespeak a quote-unquote sacramentality of a broader sense. Uh, they tell us, I think, that um, the things around us don't stand on their own two feet, don't have their mm. existence from themselves, but have their existence from God in Jesus Christ. So that the eternal word, the eternal logos of God, is the source of all that we see around us, everything that exists in the, in, in the world in which we find ourselves. And in that sense, everything is sacramental. They are sacraments of a reality that is the eternal logos itself, the eternal word of God itself. Everything exists on this understanding by virtue of participating in the eternal word of God. I think it was Pope Benedict XVI who referred to Jesus Christ as the Ur-Sacrament, the fundamental, original sacrament yeah. in a way. And so everything else in the Christian understanding of sacraments has to be understood in relation to Jesus Christ. And I wonder how Scripture fits into that, the Word of God, the divinely inspired revelation of God to us in Jesus Christ. Is the, is the Bible a sacrament? And if so, in what way? Yes, Scripture is a sacrament, I, I think, and we ought to read Scripture sacramentally. Um, I don't mean anything particularly outlandish or strange by that, I think. Um, we can simply translate it as saying, we need to look for Christ wherever we turn in the Scriptures. Christ, as you said, is the Ur sacrament, not only, I think, for Benedict, or certainly for him, but for much of the Christian tradition, even if they didn't use that term. Mm. Uh, from the early Christians on, uh, onward, people could say the Old Testament, for example, is our book, that is to say it's the book of the church, because it speaks of Jesus Christ. 
Christ is the reality, the rays in a theological term, the reality um, of which the Old Testament speaks. So whenever we open up the Bible, whenever we open up the Old Testament, um, we open it up precisely for the sake of finding Jesus Christ there. If I, turn it up, turn it, if I open it up for any other reason, um, I may do legitimate things with it perhaps, but I haven't yet reached the ultimate reason why I have this book. Mm. Um, so the, the, the reason why the early church fathers um, um, read the, the Old Testament allegorically or sacramentally is not to do some strange trick with it, to read it in some odd other sense, but precisely to find Jesus Christ there. Henri de Lubac put it this way once. He wrote, for the early church, there was still a battle going on in terms of trying to ascertain their right, as it were, to say that this is our book. Mm. And they can only do that by saying along with Philip, well, show me, show yeah. me where it is that it can, or how it is that, that this speaks of Jesus Christ. This Christological understanding of the Old Testament, I'm thinking especially the Psalms, has been very controversial. And I remember visiting not long ago with a Baptist pastor who is an evangelical, I would say a conservative evangelical. But he said, all these young students from Beeson and other schools now are talking about the intratextuality and how Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament. So I was taught the Old Testament uh, to read it historically and critically. And, you know, that was then and this is now. So there's been a revolution mm -hmm. here that is reaching, I think, in some ways down to the pastoral preaching level. The very fact that you get this question shows us the huge importance, I think, of what it is that we're doing here. Um, again, it's nothing new. Uh, it was done from the early church onward. It was done really also in many ways by the reformers themselves and later on by the Puritans. They always looked in the scriptures to see how it speaks of Jesus Christ. They always were open to typological and even to allegorical readings of scripture, understanding by that simply we're looking for Jesus Christ here. That's why we're reading these, these, these psalms. Um, now, I can understand what the pastor says in some way, and he's opening up a legitimate avenue of investigating the scriptures in the sense that history matters, and chronological point A is not identical to chronological point B. So when we're doing a historical, even a historical critical reading of the psalms, we're not doing, to my mind at least, something entirely illegitimate, but we're doing something limited in that case. We're simply looking at something historical. And and whenever we investigate history, I think we need to keep two points in mind. One is history does not stand on its own two feet. Mm -hmm. And so we always need to keep in mind that we're, we're, we're doing something a little artificial Mm. Um, because we're, we're engaging in some sort of methodological naturalism, if you wish, um, that can take on a life of its own. And we need to be very, very careful with methodological naturalism. So it, it, it's, it's a very limited thing. And secondly, I think we need to keep in mind that history can only give you probabilities, never more than that. Mm. So if, if there's something more that you want, 
Yeah. You're going to have to read the scriptures Christologically. And we have Jesus' own words, don't we, in the Gospel of John, to search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which speak of me, which testify. The entire New Testament reads the Bible this way, reads the Old Testament this mm -hmm. way. The New Testament never looks to the Old Testament simply in order to ascertain certain historical verities or historical um, recreations or mm -hmm. anything like that. Mm -hmm. The New Testament always asks the question, what is the meaning of this? And when we ask for meaning, what I mean here is, how does this speak of Jesus Christ? How does it speak of the church? How does it speak of the eschaton? Which is simply the medieval fourfold method, as it were. How does it speak of, yeah. of today's and of future realities in Jesus Christ? That's what this is all about. Now, the Protestant reformers were uh, great students of the church fathers. Uh, they published their writings, many of them for the first time uh, ever in modern vernacular and critical editions. But the church father most of them loved most dearly was St. Augustine. Uh, Luther was a member of the Augustinian order. He read St. Augustine and wanted to be a faithful disciple of his. But you seem in some ways, at least you want to not put St. Augustine down, but you want to raise up origin in some ways. Uh, and Origen has been a problematic church father for a lot of Protestants. Mm -hmm. Why Origen? I indeed am not trying to put St. Augustine down. Very true. And I do not just want to retrieve Origen either. Uh, in, my, in my work I, I have focused um, on Gregory of Nyssa perhaps more than on, on, on Origen. Gregory certainly did borrow a great deal from Origen, as you know. Um, but I also do um, work with Augustine a fair bit. I love Augustine. Yeah. But that said, yes, there is a lot in origin that, that's absolutely beautiful. Are there certain ideas, controversial ideas, uh, particularly in, on first principles, for example, of which we, about which we may scratch our heads and think, how do you get there? <laughs> yes, we can. Yeah. And there's a lot of scholarly debate uh, about how seriously uh, origin himself took those ideas. Yeah. Um, when you look at his, um, his exegetical writings, uh, yes, he engages in allegory, but again, also for origin, this is not some arbitrary imposition, an alien imposition onto the text. When he allegorizes, he does something quite similar to what Augustine does. He simply reads, reads the text Christologically. Now, does he always do equal justice to history? To my mind, he does not. Does not always do equal justice to it, and sometimes he's quite frankly completely uninterested in it. Yeah. Uh, and I wish he would he would he would do do with it more than he does sometimes. <laughs> but the beautiful thing is he takes Christ as the starting point of his exegesis and as the end point of his exegesis. Yeah. That's what we need to retrieve. Great. Um, we're almost out of time. I wish we had another hour to go on with this, but uh, I want to move to another area in which you've written uh, more recently. You have a book called Sacramental Preaching, uh, which is really a compilation of your own sermons that you uh, delivered in the church of which you're a part. Uh, I'm interested in that church, if you could say a little bit about that, but also in your preaching and how you understand preaching theologically. Yeah, I've preached uh, each of the sermons that I published in that book in our local church, um, which is a Christian Reformed church in Langley, British Columbia. And, the and also I've preached a number of these sermons, at least in somewhat short form, uh, as, a, as a chapel presentation in, uh, at Richard College. And 
Um, in many ways, these sermons are very much like other sermons that I've preached either in a local church or elsewhere. Um, the difference with regard to these particular sermons as compared to others is perhaps that um, in these sermons, I reflect within the sermon on the question of how do we interpret. Mm -hmm. So the very topic of the sermons in some way or other has to do with interpretation itself. So I raise the question, in other words, that we've just been discussing at length about how do we read the Bible? Um, now, I try not to do it overly direct. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I do preach the text. Yep. It's a sermon, not a lecture. Exactly. <laughs> and it should be a sermon. And to my mind, um, we're not in interested in the hermeneutics lecture when we're preaching. Yeah. We're interested in preaching Christ. And that's yeah. what I try to do here. But I also try to show some somewhat of, um, well, look into the kitchen of how, how we do these things, how we go about this. And, and um, I try to legitimize somewhat to the congregation without being overly um, robust about that. But I try to show something of how we get to the point of, of Christological exegesis in the, in the text. We talked about the Bible as sacramental. Um, is preaching sacramental? You know, Karl Barth has this doctrine of the threefold word of God, Jesus Christ, the written word, and the preached word. Uh, say a little bit about preaching as a form of the sacramental reality. Uh, yes, preaching is, is uh, sacramental in a very important sense. The, the Reformed Confessions talk about both preaching and uh, and then the, the, what we often call the sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper, as means of grace. Uh, and within the Reformed tradition where I come from, um, that means essentially that preaching is a sacrament, even if we didn't often call it that. But if it is a means of grace, it is a sacrament of sort. And the reason for that is that preaching renders Christ present mm. to us. Mm. Um, preaching is never about the pastor and, and the pastor's own ideas. Uh, it's never about the things that a person can put forward. Uh, preaching needs, needs to be, in that sense, very conservative. Mm. It cannot um, come with all sorts of ideas that may please the, the hearers, cannot we, uh, deal with all sorts of topics that may or may not be of interest. It needs to focus on Jesus Christ. He needs to bring the reality of Jesus Christ to the congregation. If preaching doesn't do that, along with the Apostle Paul, you know, who preaches nothing but Jesus Christ, knows of nothing but Jesus Christ, if, if the preaching is anything else, to my mind it fails. So it's sacramental, um, which places it to me on, 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 the, on an order of highest importance. Mm -hmm. Ironically, in some sense, I sometimes attend a Catholic church, and ironically, well, there's much within the Catholic tradition that I love. Um, uh, the preaching isn't always equally strong, shall we say. And for, for a Catholic to be truly a Catholic, I think uh, he can learn a lot from the Protestant tradition in the sense that sometimes the preaching is stronger there. Yeah. And, and a Protestant, I think, can often re learn from a Catholic here in the sense that knows the importance of what it is that you're doing because you're engaging in a sacramental act. You're rendering Christ present. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Hans Bursma. He is the J.I. Packer Professor of Theology at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, a wonderful theologian, a godly man. Thank you so much for this conversation, Hans. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. 
You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.